0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy and that's what you're gonna get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back in End of Days Bunker, and you won't want to miss this discussion. I'm here, joined via Zoom, by Dr. Dan Morgan, who's a self-defined liberal epidemiologist, infectious disease expert, and in charge of containing COVID-19 infections in the hospital. And he comes on to talk about some of his reservations and doubts about current policies and strategies. You won't want to miss this and what Dr. Dan Morgan has to say. But first, I'm going to have a little discussion about a very difficult topic, which is agreeing 75%, 80%, 55%, or 25% with someone else. We need to do that more than ever before, and it is apparently the hardest thing for people to do. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, you know, there's something that happens between disagreeing with everything somebody says and agreeing with everything something says. And what's in between those two things is life. Life is this thing where you often agree to some degree with someone else, but usually not everything. You don't agree with every one of their opinions. And the beauty of being an intelligent adult is being able to acknowledge that one can agree largely with someone else and still acknowledge that you can disagree with something else and you don't need to hate them totally. You don't need to try to become their enemy. You're not enemy simply because you agree 75%. That's okay, you can be comfortable with that agreement. And yet, that is one of the hardest things on Twitter. You know, in the last year, I feel like I have, you know, give you my opinion on many issues, but there have been three issues where some subset of people who tend to agree with me uh, disagree and it might be a different subset. So I just want to name those three issues. And and my problem isn't that people disagree with me on one of these three issues, which of course I believe I'm correct on all three, um, but that's of course my internal belief, um, but that they are quick to get really angry with me. And, and then look to disagree with me on other issues where they don't disagree with me and to make it personal, like they don't like me, um, and and uh, to say things like somebody told me, which is, uh, it's really disappointing that you hold this belief, I'm disappointed in you. I'm like, well, you need to grow up then because it's gonna be a lot of people whom you agree with largely, you may even like, you may respect, you may enjoy their work, but you're not gonna agree 100%. And if you're disappointed by that, um, you're gonna be disappointed by life because that's life. Um, And it's true, even for people who are near and dear to you, siblings, parents, um, loved ones, uh, you're going to have to learn to get along with people and like people, even though 5% of the time, 10% of the time you disagree. So I assume that people listen to this podcast, the podcast that I run, probably principally agree with me. Otherwise, um... Otherwise, you're a truly a good person because actually to actually expose yourself to a set of beliefs you routinely disagree with. Um, I actually think that's a that's really a, a something that I agree with, actually. So there again, we have some bridge. Um, I think that's important to do. So I would commend you for that. But I would suspect that, like most things in life, the majority of this audience mostly agrees with what I have to say, or at least respects the fact that, you know, I'm reaching this opinion after thinking about it a fair bit. And I try to justify it with um, evidence and data points. Um so what are the three issues that have given me the most pushback just in the last year? In my academic career, the three issues that have given me the most pushback are probably cancer screening, or of course, if you listen to this podcast, you know my views on, I think the benefits tend to be oversold. There's a compulsive campaign to get people to do it, and there's not really a campaign to inform people of it. Um, overdiagnosis is a threat. Some of these trials don't show improvements in all-cause mortality. Um, these are really sort of big question marks. So cancer cre- screening gets a lot of people... Um, Uh, Gets their passions going. Um, The next issue of course is um, uh, a particular views on when randomized trials are necessary or the approval or use of a medical practice or drug that gets some people fired up. The third thing of course is the precision oncology stuff where I like to think that we ought to have really good evidence before we universally deploy genomic sequencing and give people drugs in a widespread off-label manner and that's something that, you know, some people disagree with. In the last year, I've hit three sore spots, I think. One sore spot of course, is um, my continual discussion of clinical trials. You know, I've had a bunch of um, trials discussions that, you know, I'm personally proud of, because I think they really are putting the finger on the problem, like profoundly bad and polo and bill cap, my god, bill cap, you know, trials that, you know, have deep problems. And one of the things I hear uh, back a lot is um, from some somebody on Twitter who got really upset was, um, you know, it's really, it's really easy for you to just sit there and criticize the trial, but you're not a PI on any of these studies, so until you're the PI on 20 studies, you can't criticize the trial. That's the argument. Just really, you got to be the PI on one of these studies and get your medical writer to write the manuscript for you. Otherwise, you can't talk about medical writers. That's how I imagine that they would be saying it. Um, and, and what I want to say, of course, is something that many people have tried to explain when this argument recurrently comes, which is one, um, uh, uh, there are people who do trials, and then there are a few people who do meta-research or, or health outcomes or regulatory affairs. They're not always running the trials, but sometimes they have important perspectives and perhaps are even a more thoughtful reader and, and student of trials than the person who happened to put his name on the study, happened to apprentice for a trialist and become a trialist. Um, and, and if that argument doesn't work, maybe they just need to hear the old-fashioned argument, which is something that Milos's, uh grandma likes to say, which is, I don't have to lay an egg to know one is rotten, which is that you don't have to do clinical trials all the time to know that one stinks. Um, similarly, you don't have to open a Michelin star restaurant to go in there and be a food critic. You don't have to make a major motion picture to have an opinion about whether or not a movie is good. You don't have to be a Grammy award-winning album artist to think a song is good or bad Um, you know you don't have to do something to have an aesthetic judgment of the thing itself and in the case of clinical trials that I describe of course you know I'm showing you ways in which they're actually not giving useful information for patients and so the only thing you really need to know is you need to be a doctor um, or you need to be somebody who's a health professional who cares about patients or you need to be a methodologist who cares that trials give us useful information you just need to care that patients are getting the right care and then you can think through it logically and basically On evidence, and that's really all you need. Um, You don't need to have been a PI on a study. So that's one point. The second point is because I disagree with the premise. I don't argue back and and give examples of all the personal experience I do have with clinical trials and protocols and putting people on study and following through studies and checking against protocols and figuring out what to do. Um, But and the reason I don't justify argue that back is that I think it just concedes the point, which is a misguided point. But anyway, the clinical trials, it always gets pushback. That's one of the three. The second thing. you know, I've been really shocked at the pushback I've gotten about um, just a really simple argument, which is that if you want to um, debunk medicine, if you want to get us doing more medicine and health right and thinking more scientifically, what should you focus your energies on? And of course, I have a simple value of information framework. This is a framework that's actually kind of... um, not a subjective thing. It's actually a very objective way of, if your goal was to debunk a practice, what should you focus on? And and here's what my rules are. One, you should focus on things that are paid for by society rather than individuals. So the question is, who pays? Do people pay out of their own pocket? Or does society pay through increased premiums, increased taxes? Do we all fund that? And of course, there's more of a burden to Look into what society is paying for because it has implications for all of us in a way that an individual's payments do not. If I choose to buy a gaudy vase and put it on my desk, it's frankly none of your business. If I choose to buy a gaudy vase because I think it's going to ward off a heart attack, um, you know, you might say there's no evidence that that does that. But, you know, again, I'd say it's my money and I can do what I want with it. So, you know, I think we do have to prioritize societal spending. The next thing I think is we have to prioritize invasive medical practices over non-invasive medical practices. It would be a whole heck of a lot worse if a routine procedure that involved cracking open the chest or putting a wire in a heart is worse than, you know, a pill Um, or a um, sort of um, uh, uh, something that's applied to the skin. Um, Things that are invasive are more worthy of our um, attention because of risk of harms, um, because they involve more um, pain and discomfort during the procedure often, um, uh, and uh, because they're often more costly. So those often go hand in hand. But invasive versus non-invasive, I think, yeah, invasive is more important. Rare or common, if something is being done very infrequently, I think it's less worth your energy than if it's done more commonly. Cheap or costly. Things that are really costly, uh, stenting for chronic stable angina uh, or cancer drugs. Uh, that's much more worthy of your attention than, you know, whether or not somebody takes uh, a milk thistle, you know, that's less costly. Um, is there honesty or dishonesty? If your goal is debunking and somebody was really overselling the benefits of a particular practice, I think you got to go where there's most dishonesty. I mean, that's one of the factors. Um, And then finally, the factor I always come to is, does it use your skill set? So you know, if you're an MD, PhD-trained surgeon with fellowship training, and you think about what you could apply your own energies to, and you look at the body of things that are accepted surgically, um, I can tell you there are many, many things that really need somebody to write critical articles on. And in the next year, hopefully, if this goes through peer review, we're going to have a couple of papers and surgical practices. Um, but. There are very few surgeons who spend their time um, criticizing the things that the surgeons do and have a high degree of technical knowledge in. Instead, many of them choose to talk about how cupping is a bad idea or a jade egg is stupid. And then the last thing is, does it affect others? Does it just affect you or does it affect others? And here, you know, vaccines is in that other camp. It affects others, it has implications for other people, but jade eggs and cupping just affect the person who's getting it done. Okay, so. You know, when I'm critical of people who spend all their time on soft targetism, I, um... I'm often accused of having just simply an aesthetic preference, but it's not an aesthetic preference. It's actually kind of a, a reasonable way to view the world, which is we have limited time. We have finite time. We have certain skill sets and you should take your skill set and your finite time and focus on things that disproportionately require society to pay, are more invasive or harmful, are more common, are more costly, are are, are, are predicated with more dishonesty, that utilize your skill set and that have implications for other people. Um, so vaccines, yeah, that's coming up there because of the other people implications. Um, uh, common surgical procedures and I don't want to name them because I'm going to scoop my papers um, but uh, you know common surgical procedures that have like lousy data that's where you need to spend your energy because they involve society paying they're invasive, they're common, they're costly Um, and there's a huge veil of sort of misconception and perhaps even dishonesty around them. So my views on soft targetism are not you know just that a lot of people are wasting their time on the internet. It's because just a strict basis of the facts you know It's a, it's a foolish thing to do. And, you know, you don't have to think too hard about it to realize that I'm making some fair points. Okay. And then the third thing I've gotten a lot of pushback on is, um, you know, trying to separate two things in this really heated discussion of the Stanford authors, Jay Bott and, and John Unites, um, uh, which is that, yes, we can really disagree with their policy conclusion that they don't favor lockdown, um, that they think the lockdown is excessive and was maybe a, a foolish move. That might be their policy conclusion. We have to separate that from their scientific evidence, which is a certain estimate, hotly contested about the prevalence of IgG and IgM antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 in Santa Clara County, which is hotly contested, um, from the third thing, which is who Jay bought and John Unides um, and... Um, I'm going to mispronounce his name because I haven't seen his name too often, but said, um, you know, to separate them as people. And, and, and you know, the argument that Jeff Flyer and I have made in stat, and um, again, we tried to make it on the internet, I guess, although I, I really felt like I had to give up after a while, which is that, you know, they could have done a bad study, and that study could have serious flaws, and, and they could have a policy idea that you disagree with. Those two things are separate. And then, of course, the third thing is... Um, Uh, there's no reason to actually try to make a verdict on whether or not they're good people or bad people. I mean, we can keep it away from getting so, so personal. And I guess it still troubles me that people think they're agents of the right or that they want more people to die or all these things and these kind of crazy things I hear people say. um, I find that concerning. And um, why do I find that concerning? I find that concerning because um, it it won't be long before today's critic... Today's most heated critic of John Ioannidis and Jay Bot becomes tomorrow's victim. Who will be tomorrow's victim? Will it be, uh, it could be me. I could be talking about cancer drug costing too much and maybe people will uh, decide that that makes me a bad person. It could be um, John Mandrola. Uh, he's going to talk about some some cardiac procedure that uh, is found to be no good and people could decide that means he wants people to die. It could be any of us. And I think we have to be really careful that um, we we separate things. And the reason I say this is that these were three issues, my views on certain clinical trials, my view on why soft targetism is a waste of a waste of doctor talent, um, and my view that we should hate ideas, um, but respect people um, that, uh, and, and that's something that I try to model on this podcast. Um, uh, these have all provoked ire. Um, and, and what bothers me is that there's some people who are quick to use it to um, really, you know, Hate on everything that I do, um, and and the reason I say that was somebody you know, and I was pointing out that we should like you know take it easy on these guys, um, uh, at least not name call and insult them. Somebody said, uh, uh, somebody tweeted that this is this is they tweeted a picture of the book *Malignant*. They said this is from the guy who just wrote a book about bad science, and I was like, yeah. I did write a book about why I think a lot of cancer trials are misaligned. But if you read that book and you find anywhere in that book, it says that um, because cancer trials are bad, um, we can name call and uh, mob uh, stone, uh, you know, scientists. Uh, Then I'll be a hypocrite. But I'm pretty confident that that, that's not in that book (laughs) Um, because it isn't. So I just want to bring this back because I, I just noticed some interesting tweets that really, really... I find fascinating. Okay, here are the the tweets that caught me. John Ioannidis taught the classic scientific method and at Stanford this past winter. Given that he either doesn't understand elementary statistics or is a liar, it only seems fair that Stanford should offer students who took it a partial refund. I love this hypothesis. Yonides is flooding the literature with incorrect papers to make his previous statement that 50% of the literature is wrong, right. Maybe he's worried about too many research findings being right. Yonides is a fucking snowflake. He made his career out of pointing out methodologic flaws in other people's work and complaining about overhype, but goes crying about being the victim when his deeply flawed and overhyped work comes under the same scrutiny. And then the one that really blew me away was... Um, Yonidis and I co-authored a paper where he was joint senior author and I was joint first author. When I asked him about his methodology, he pointed to a previous paper. When I pointed out the methodology was not described there, he pointed out he written 400 papers. This was presumably to suggest that I, essentially a postdoc, would not ask further questions. He eventually backed off and the paper was published without his method. But 12 years later, he can presumably make even more impressive claims about his publications. Um, sounds like a swell guy. And then somebody who is an anonymous person says nothing says good science like smearing someone on Twitter. Um, and And I guess what I want to say is that like, is it really like a, a call for like you know anyone who feels like the man didn't treat you well in your entire life um, to 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 say that um, he he did something to you many years ago that you didn't like? I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah, the the Santa Clara study could be really really bad, and it can really really disagree with the guy about his uh, about his policy implications. But twelve years ago. <laughs> But 12 years ago, you know, he may or may not have said something that sounds a little bit arrogant to one person. I mean, I don't know. Where's the limit here? I mean, (laughs) um, and then somebody said that, you know, that uh, I'm in cahoots because they pointed out that like seven years ago, uh, like one of our paper, we had a. We co-authored like two papers together, and then I, I I looked and I think I've co-authored with some other people who are involved in in on both sides of this issue. And I was like, look, I've written like two hundred and forty papers, and I've co-authored with I mean maybe five hundred, a thousand people. So that, I'm not I'm not, You're gonna be in this business long enough. You're gonna co-author with some people. Uh, doesn't mean that uh you know I, I got a I got a horse in the race. Doesn't mean we're actually friends. Um. Okay. So what's my point here? My point here is. Look, uh, <laughs> um, I I understand that you know people are angry about different issues. Um, some people feel like they know what policy will save the most lives, and they're very sure about that. And anyone who has policy that, that does something else or has science that might support policy that does something else, even if that science is flawed and maybe overhyped, um, that those people have bad intentions and bad goals. And I guess what I want to say is, At least we should keep an open mind that perhaps they may not have bad intentions and they may not be sleeper agents for the GOP, but perhaps they simply do believe what they believe. They may simply be making errors like the kind of errors that a lot of people make. Um, And there is a difference between a few people being critical and a mob kind of going after people. Okay, so that's one point. The second point is the soft target point. The third point is, you know, I'm going to be critical of some trials, which I frankly, that I don't think there are many people critical of. So that's why it's very different. There is no mob there. It's just me, maybe, you know, two other, four other oncologists in the country critical of certain trials. Okay, but I want to step back and say that instead of arguing all these three issues, um, I think... What's more important than any of these issues is just to be able to say that I agree with VP about cancer screening and about polo and about this, but I don't agree with him on soft targets, but I do agree with him about civility or a different person. I agree with VP about civility. I agree with VP about soft targets. I don't agree with VP about polo trial, but I do agree with him about bill cap. Okay. A third person, I don't agree with you on cancer screening. I don't agree with you on bill cap. I don't agree with you on soft targets. I do agree with you on civility. I do agree with you on polo. What I want to say is that that is what we got to get to, is that it's okay to not agree with everything I think and not disagree with everything I think. And the reason I say this is that there was somebody who was arguing with me about trials and, um, he tagged in the tweet. He was like, "Oh, you know, this guy has this guy doesn't run trials, and he's critical of trials." And then he said, uh, and then he had, of course, the classic um what is referred to as snitch tweeting. He included the names of a bunch of people. and And then I just pointed out that, Listen, man, the first two people you included on this list of names are people who disagree with me on soft targets. The second two people you include on this list of names are people who disagree with me on trials. And the third two people you, you include on this list of names are people who think that it's okay to be in civil uh in times like this. Um and I was like, what are you trying to build a a clubhouse of people who disagree with VP on one issue or the other? Um and I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to like make it like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't like you. And you're all people who don't like you but for totally different reasons. Um, and that is just crazy. That's so dangerous. That's so silly um, because uh, it's you don't have to agree with somebody 100% to realize that they have great value um, and that uh, that, the, that the things in which they do you do agree with um, are something that's worthy of consideration. And it might, the fact that you agree with somebody 8 out of 10 times and you disagree with them 2 out of 10 times might someday give you the extra burst of energy to actually think again about those two issues you disagree and see if you might have missed something. Um, I will be the first to concede that I think the Santa Clara study has big problems. Um, uh, I do, I'm not a big fan of the amount of attention it got. I'm not a big fan of, you know, this kind of hyping your studies. I mean, but but I don't think that they're an outlier in terms of wanting to hype their work. Every buddy wants to hype their garbage work (laughs) you know they're the same as everyone else i think the reason people are so angry is they think that garbage work leads to a conclusion policy conclusion that they disagree with which is totally fair um but i think we forget that there many times the uh, it cuts the other way that somebody else is saying some they're hyping their stupid uncontrolled phase two that leads to drug approval that you know is going to have negative implications according to me um but you know we don't go after them in a mob mentality um and, and then, you know, all the jokes that like, you know, um, quote, was John Unity's 2020 New Year's resolution to be a living example of everything John Uniti's has been warning us about? I mean, <laughs> the jokes about like somebody's body of work, they just seem like they're, it's, it's, it's just too much. I mean, take it easy. Okay, so what are the themes here? I feel like I'm beating on more about one issue than I ought to. I mean, because my purpose is not to persuade you on all of these points, which I do realize are for whatever reason, some people care a great deal about, which I didn't think much of soft targetism, a lot of people care about this idea of what's the bounds of civility and where does it end. Um, And and that's something people care about. And then apparently, whether or not some of these clearly bad trials are clearly bad. I guess what I want to say is that we all need to step back and accept the fact that um, people are complex. Nobody in science is a sinner or a saint. There's nobody who's all the way one or the other. Everyone is a blend of good views, bad views, good papers, bad papers, um, some different degrees. Um, And we don't have to agree 100% on every issue, Um, uh, but we can still have meaningful dialogue. Um, And if you're the kind of person who wants to snitch tweet and build together a coalition of people who disagree on different issues, you're just a bad person. You're really engaging in a malicious activity. And I think people are losing their marbles online. I bet you would find that academics spending time on Twitter is rising exponentially, if you can measure it. I bet you would find that anger is going up and up and up. And I think everyone should kind of chillax a little bit because honestly, at the end of the day, um, I hate to tell the truth, which is probably a lot of policy is really not being driven by individual studies. It's being driven by complex interactions of how science influences people's attitudes, which influences the body politic, which influences political leaders. And that has a lot more to do with emotions than it has to do with any particular data point. Um, you know, that's often the case in political science. But anyway, don't kill me for that opinion too, that this is that there's not a direct linear link between studies and policies. Um, I, and I also think that, you know, the chips aren't gonna fall just yet. It's gonna be 10 years from now where people are still gonna be looking at all of the things things that happen now and what the implications are, um, and whether or not they led to changes, and whether or not they led to difference in outcomes. And they will be heavily disputed, as, as those kinds of methodology papers always are. So anyway, bottom line, learn to partially agree with people. It's, it's the best thing you can do for your mental health. Two, and the final point, when you get angry on Twitter, um, you act often foolishly. And I just wanna close with, with what I think is the greatest, the greatest example of that. So, of course, I had noticed very early on that, um, you know, there's everyone out there pretending to be a SARS-CoV-2 expert who doesn't know anything about it. And um, I find that funny. So, you know, in the spirit of 2020, I went out there and I changed my profile and I put SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017. I said, he doc, academic SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017. And then somebody got angry that I was calling for civility, or maybe they're angry about soft targetism. Who the who the hell knows what this person was angry about? And then this person, you know, did what, did what courageous people do, which is s- s- fuel flames on Twitter. They say, wait again, does your profile say you've been a SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017? And then somebody else piles on uh, this other professor, he didn't even spell it properly. SARS-CoV-2, it's not a thing. And then I write back, I guess humor is dead. And then they're like, well, proclaiming yourself a SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017 on a publicly placing platform isn't a joke. It's deceit. And then I go, tough crowd. It says you have 43,000 followers. Telling them you're an expert in something doesn't make you funny, but it might make you a bit of a fraud. (laughs) And then I sent him a link to the grounds for class action litigation because I guess he could take up a fraud suit with me. And then I told him that I guess I'd better be able to prove real quick that I've been working on bats a few years ago. And then this went on and on. And then somebody was like, look, this is a joke for two reasons. One, there are a lot of people who pretend to be an expert, don't know anything. And two, SARS-CoV-2 did not exist in 2017. So it's really funny what he said. I'm like, don't kill, don't explain my joke. Come on. I'm trying to do a show here. You know, uh, this is, you can't can't explain comedians jokes. Come on. Um, But, you know, um, this is, this is really bad. This is like telling is that you're so worked up that I'm arguing not that the study is good. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that in the process of debunking his study, you probably shouldn't also joke that the man never did any good work and that he's trying to kill people and he's of the right wing and all this other stuff. I mean, you know, take it back a little but take it easy, man. Take it easy. And, and, and then they get so worked up. They're just looking for something to get more angry about and then they get angry that I'm a SARS-CoV-2 expert since 2017 and then they have no sense of humor. Just, just gone. No sense of humor and then just going on and then I explain this is a joke and then he says it's deceit I was like this guy killing me what is wrong what happened to you what are you so angry about I don't know nobody here is is done anything to you by making a harmless joke on Twitter Um, boy really really bad and it's just because it's hard to agree 65% with somebody and I think it's it's important that we do so On that positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Dan Morgan. All right, I'm back, joined via Zoom with Dr. Daniel Morgan, who's a professor at the University of Maryland Medical Center. And he's a practicing infectious disease doctor, and he's the head of hospital control. And we were going to talk briefly, because I guess time is... Time is tough these days. About, uh, you know, some tweets that that Dan said recently. Um, Let me pull up, actually. This is by Dan Morgan. This uh, went relatively viral. It is strange being an epidemiologist, liberal, scientist who feels like we are making mistakes with absolutism of shutdowns, and being lumped with anti-vaxxers, Trump, etc. by my own people. Many people out of work leads to anxiety and depression and social discord, leads to alcohol and risk behaviors, no healthcare, kids, no school, no internet, key social determinants of health. Those with no skin in the game seem to ignore and say it's about going out. We're talking about people dying with any decision, so have the conversation honestly. What do we need? Minimize harms of social distancing to work and well-being. Build resilient society with universal basics, internet, healthcare, fast money. Population studies of COVID epi to know where it is before hospital testing identifies in 2021. So, Dan, it's great to have you back.
1: Great. Good to be here.
0: When you wrote these words, what were you getting at? What is this absolutism that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I should preface this by saying, day to day, I'm stuck in a lot of the weeds of infection control um, mm. in incident command type meetings. So uh, I, I sort of pay attention a little bit nationally um, when, I have a t- when I have the time. And it just seems like there, there's a, a very strong push for uh, we need to have absolute shutdown. Otherwise, we're making a mistake. And it just seems like a, a very strong approach to something which is relatively unproven and which may not be the right answer for certain places or certain times. And uh, we seem to be ignoring that it has very obvious harms associated with it.
0: So this is a message that I think, um, you know, seems very obvious and self-evident. But on the other hand, there is really sort of, I think, a strong pressure not to mention any of these things. Um, That's the part that I don't really fully understand, which is, um, you know, I I think, It's clear that this is a serious virus. We have to do something about it. But many of the interventions we've deployed against it have, um, you know, going to have consequences that cut the other way, that really deeply hurt people. And they might probably disproportionately hurt poorer people who are of racial ethnic minorities. Um, And yet that part of the discussion has kind of been suppressed. And some people claim that, um, you know, uh, until the virus is totally squelched, um we can't even entertain questions of trade-offs and there will be no economy you know there'll be no possibility for anything until it's totally squelched uh how do you feel about this issue
1: yeah i mean that's that's what bugs me i guess is um that, that I feel like, uh, you know, obviously we're in a very difficult time. This will change the way things are in our country, you know, similar to 9-11, but probably more so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we really don't know the right answer to it. And, um, yeah, and there's this uh, very strong way of thinking, which, I mean, I guess I heard it voiced maybe most clearly by um, Donald McNeil, the mm-hmm. New York Times reporter, who really seemed to advocate that we should be like China, you know that china did the best job they completely shut it down and that's what we should be doing but we're not going to do it and um i think it ignores just a lot of the uncertainty that you know that is out there like new york city obviously had a horrible problem yeah. and um you know and, and there were a lot of people who died and, and it was a tragedy but then there are other places like florida that you would think should have had a horrible problem by mismanagement and a, a at-risk population etc and seem to get out of it pretty much scot-free Um
0: that's one that's one good example. You know, I remember back uh in March photos of the beaches, uh talk of how Ron DeSantis hasn't done anything of value. Um and 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 that criticism might have been apt, you know, that they, (laughs) they that they weren't doing things that they ought to have been doing, um, at least based on the best available evidence at the time. Uh but yet somehow, oddly, uh and and something that's not yet fully understood. Uh, They were largely appear to be spared sort of the apocalyptic scenario that many had uh, prognosticated. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that just gets at the great deal of uncertainty around this and why it's such a strange thing that we are completely focused on models when obviously we don't know a lot of what, you know, leads to the spreading. I mean, we know that certain places have had huge problems, but, you know, I mean, like Italy had big problems. Greece didn't. That doesn't make too much sense um you know like florida didn't but new york did um i mean i think that uh acknowledging that uncertainty is important and um and and also realizing that if we really set ourselves down as scientists that this will be horrible if people don't take draconian measures and they don't take those measures then we lose a lot of credibility Mm. you know i mean we we look like ron desantis was was smart when he probably just bumbled his way into like, you know, a lucky situation, right. which may be the, you know, federal policy right now.
0: Right. That's well put. Um, so, so is it fair to say that the reason you take this stance is that you're a secret Trump supporter trying to get him reelected? Is that what you're up to?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, Ron Paul and, and Trump and whoever. Um no, I mean, that's that's the hard part is that um, I think that with Trump being such a divisive figure, I mean, in, in my head too, um, uh, the fact that if, if he supports anything or if he takes a certain stance, it seems like um, highly educated, intelligent, thoughtful people sometimes just react in the opposite direction, um, yeah. you know, as though like uh, they they don't they still can't consider all the options. And that, that's, I guess, is what's problematic to me. Like, I don't trust him to think through things and to come up with the right decision. But, you know, uh, some of the things he may, you know, randomly choose to do for his own interests or whatever may actually be, you know, reasonable options. um, But we're not open to considering you know, what could happen in trying to have a little bit of humility in this situation.
0: Yeah, I guess I'd say that, you know, and we wrote something that just came out just before we started talking about how, you know, I think we have to separate this from a political discussion. And the fact that it's getting tied together is a major disservice because there are some people who, as you, you know, put yourself, you know, who are sort of liberal progressive thinkers, um, who, you know, may have different thoughts on the absolutism of shutdowns, who, you know, are hesitant to speak because you don't want to get lumped in with, you know, the wrong reason. Um, but, you know, I, so I, the wrong motivation for your your stance. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about what Emily Oster wrote today. You know, you tweeted this article, and I was just a third of the way through it before I looked at my clock and realized we had to talk. Um, w- Professor Oster was making the point that... Um, uh, that that you know you keep pushing people you keep asking for you know hundred uh, percent compliance and you might end up with something less than had you asked for something more reasonable is that the major thesis of the article?
1: Yeah, I mean that's what I took away from it. And I, again, I you know just read it quickly um, this morning. But she's an economist um, who does a lot of stuff on like childbirth and. Uh, a reasonable approach to pregnancy and childbirth, which is hard to find. Right. And, and I thought it just made a lot of sense that she was saying it, we're not having the right message to say, just stay home. Cause that's actually really, really hard, especially like we're six weeks into that in Maryland and uh, people are going a bit crazy. Um, So if if you try to change the message and say, like, there's a range of things you can do, then it it may actually um, help people be safer overall, that people aren't deciding either you stay home and you don't see anyone and you don't go jogging because there's clouds of virus around you, you know, or whatever, um, that if uh, if people have a better sense of the range of things, then they may actually do better at, like, not trying to, you know, have a party, not, you know, going out to the park with lots of people, but you know, doing some things, going out for a walk with their kid, uh, you know, going to a park, that kind of thing.
0: Right. I, I you know, I'm struck by, um, you know, recently I drove down from Portland, Oregon to the Bay Area, right? And so when I'm in Portland, uh, you know, getting ready, loading up the car, um, I, I'm driving out of the town and I see people bicycling 7 a.m., 6 a.m. on city streets wearing, um, you know, the full mask. Total mask. <laughs> and, and, and and cooking up a hill, you know, we're talking eleven percent grade. You know, you're working hard. And I know what it's like to do that kind of cycling. And I'll tell you, you know, you put some cloth on my face, I'm gonna suffocate. And then I start to think to myself, you know, this person is well intentioned. You know, this person wants to do whatever they, they can to combat this. But this has got to be, you know, the least useful thing you could possibly do. Uh, ear- early in a morning in Portland on a city street, suffocating uh, yourself to prevent droplets from landing on concrete pavement that no one's going to touch for days, you know. Um, and no one's around in sight. You know, we're the only two people around for, uh, you know, for 500 feet. Okay. Um, that's, that's the one thing. Then I drive out of town and i'm in i'm in trump pence country and I, and i'm and i'm driving out of town and then i see um you know i stop to get gas um people are uh, just teaming on the sidewalks it's now it's a sunny day and everyone's there there's no masks there's nothing you know it's just total total free for all i say my god the truth is something in between these two extremes. This has got to be something in between. Something in between just absolutely nonchalantly acting and doing things that are really not sustainable. And and I think that's the sort of conversation that has been really difficult to have. Um, and, you know, you read article after article online about how you can exercise with a mask on. And I think that that's not the battle to be picking. Um, you know, that's not the priority. How do you think about these sort of isn't it possible to be extreme in both directions?
1: Yeah, no I mean that's um I mean that's uh, I'm I'm both horrified like when I see that like Arkansas is going to have like some open air concert you yeah, know with right. uh you know people squeezed in or you know, when I see people drive, we don't really ride bikes here on the East Coast. Right. So when I see people driving in their car by themselves with the an N95 mask on.
0: <laughs> I saw that too, yeah.
1: You know, and uh, and it seems like the miasma theory is really what it is. Like people just feel like it's around them yeah. and something needs to be beyond them to protect them. And uh, it just seems like we're missing the, the big point of it. Um, yeah, and, it, you know, and there's not much room for sort of the in-between and something that will be sustainable for one to two years. I mean, it seems like that's the best estimate is this will be circulating for some time. And then we really need to figure out kind of what a new normal is um, until, you know, there's enough immunity either from a vaccine or herd immunity that it, uh, you know, stops becoming a big problem.
0: You know, I I like to think about it a little bit like weight loss. Um, There there are many things you can do uh, to lower your weight over the course of 30 days or 60 days. And in fact, so many people have had Quote unquote success with 30 60 day weight loss but the key to weight loss is to do something where four years from now you can stick with it um, and you can keep it off and similarly you know there are lots of things one can do for a week uh two weeks to combat the spread of a virus but the key for public policies to think of things that people can sustain for as you talk about the long haul which might be you know I know some people are quite optimistic about these vaccines, but, uh, you know, realistically, we're talking 18 months. Uh, and realistically, you might not have a vaccine with 100% efficacy. It might be something less than that. And so it might be talking even longer. Um, let me ask you about universal cloth masks. <laughs> okay. Because I know you're an infected. Oh, I see. You're putting your mask on now. Uh, (laughs) That looks like a handmade one with elastic bands. Oh, well done.
1: Oh, yeah. We we get lots of volunteer uh, masks. We have 7,000 at the VA right now,
0: I think. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, the TSA has about 13 million N95s that they just got tucked under a couch somewhere. Uh, but, (laughs) But my question about cloth masks are, I think, how can I put it? I, and i want to know if you agree because you know you're somebody who's actually run cluster randomized control trials you know like we talked about we talked about prior episode bug um, and you're an infectious disease expert okay so what i want to say is you know is it theoretically plausible absolutely you know if everyone wore cloth masks and we had high adherence um, it, it might not protect the wearer but it might prevent the wearer from expelling droplets and covering surfaces and yet however you know Asterisk, we do have some small-scale studies of this phenomenon. We have cluster randomized control trials where people were randomized to surgical masks, cloth masks, or a control arm where they didn't have to wear a mask, but could occasionally wear a surgical mask if they so felt. Um, and what this trial remarkably found was that there was a higher rate of transmission in the cloth mask arm. Um, you know, this was one of the pieces of evidence cited in the BMJ review a few weeks ago. Uh, okay, so let's take that with a grain of salt. Um, But what I want to say is we absolutely don't have evidence that really fits the current situation, which is what happens when a nation, a nation of 300 million plus people with diverse interests and goals and motivations being torn apart politically with strong, vehement factions within. What happens when you recommend to such a group of people, not a trial population, a population where there are people going to be protesting and not doing anything and there are also people going to be doing everything, biking with masks up hills. Um, You know, when you talk about that kind of population and you make a universal cloth mask recommendation, I guess what I want to say is there is no real data that's exactly the situation, right? Everything's an extrapolation. And when you make extrapolations, you got to say, I'm not a little, sh- I'm not 100% sure. There's a little doubt. You know, it sounds okay. It might not be so bad. We can do it. You know, I do it when I go to the store. I'm in a county that's mandatory. You know, they won't let you in the store. I- and I'm happy to do it. Happy to do whatever you want me to do. You know, for years, I wore the gown and glove after I'd read Star I See You and Bug anyway. So look at me. You know, as a doctor, I'm quite habituated in doing things that I know are question mark, question mark, question mark. So I've been doing, I you know, I do what I'm told. Okay, but I, 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 so I'm happy to do what I'm told. I'm happy to do this. But I just want the people who are signatories of like 100-person doctor, 100 do, experts believe, 10 Nobel laureates think we must do this. I just want them to just have an ounce of humility. And at least, for Christ's sakes, be a little bit honest and say, you know what, we don't really know for sure. But they will not say, they're just so dogged. And every day I go on Twitter, it's just more absolutism. And I think that the, I mean, you've lost your mind. I mean, if you if you really think you are an impartial arbiter of evidence and you have such absolutism, you've lost your marbles. Okay, so that's my take. What? How do you view this? And am I too harsh?
1: <laughs> no, I think you, you I mean, uh, I think you described it earlier as, uh, you know, this is like a, it's, it's like a foreign policy decision. Um, you know, we have to decide what we're going to do. And uh, there's very limited information about what to do. And, uh, you know, and certainly when, you know, this uh, pandemic was getting started in the U.S. and week by week you had different guidance coming out and there was no new data, of course. Right. I mean, like the CDC was saying, don't wear masks mask in the community. And, you know, I had that in my town hall and told right. people, like, right. you know, this is what I wear when I'm seeing a patient. This is what I wear when I'm at home. Nothing. Right. And then the next week, you know, the CDC comes out saying wear cloth mask. And, um, you know, my, and my wife mostly agrees with me, but she uh, is, you know, she, she thinks I'm overly skeptical sometimes, but she's like, there must be some new data, right? Why did they recommend it? Right. Um, let me see, like, oh, they say, you know, asymptomatic people can transmit it. So wear a cloth mask. Right. Um, which, you know, I think I think, you know, the point that you're making that we really have very limited certainty about what to do is is just a key part of this. Yeah. Like um, there's recommendations and it may be that it's like a good reminder to people if you wear a mask. Um, I think it's one of the, the least harmful parts of ours, you know, social uh, responses to sure. it, like right. shutting down uh, businesses. Right. Um, closing child you know, care. Closing these, schools yeah, right, are a lot right, worse.
0: Right. Right. Agree. Agree.
1: And, and I do feel like um you know uh, if i imagine like cloth mask and maybe face shields or whatever people want will be like um, as much a security blanket for people to get back out as it has a real benefit for uh, actually preventing infections and that so probably probably they'll be present for a good while and i you know and i'm kind of fine with it i'm resigned to you know drag mine around and I'll put it on when i need but i also don't really believe in it um as like you know blocking transmission of a virus um, and yeah, it's it's weird being in a position of someone on incident command where we're trying to determine policy for the hospital, because I swear about 75% of a hospital, uh, issues right now is like little fires, people being upset about something, people being scared, people refusing to come to work. Right. And, uh, and so much of the decision-making just doesn't even really talk about what's the evidence. It's just, uh, what can we do? What will make people feel safe? What right. will make people, uh feel able to take care of the patients who really need it.
0: Right, that's well put. I mean, you know, I mean, it sounds like you and I have the same attitude, which is we wear the mask. I want to tell everyone I'm, I'm, I'm wearing when you tell me to wear it, do something I do it. Look, I I mean, we are doctors. For for years we've been getting the tuberculosis skin test year after year after year until finally I said enough's enough, we wrote an article and then a month later, this they change the guidelines. They change the guidelines and say, you don't have to, you know, not all hospitals have to do the stupid test. You know, we get our- yeah, we, we get the, there
1: was like an opt-out in the CDC guidance. Yeah. So we'd we stopped doing it for about five years, but uh, yeah, now, you have to like kind of find the opt-out language, which is hidden.
0: The <laughs> hidden language, yeah. So we do that. You know, every year at my hospital, we had an N95 testing. And I was like, look, you know, we can, there's one thing is like the level of evidence for N95 beyond surgical, but there's another thing, which is like, what's the level of evidence that a yearly fit test when your face doesn't change, you've not gained more than 15 pounds or lost more than 15 pounds and you haven't grown facial hair when you didn't have it before. What's the level of evidence for that? You know, I I don't ask questions, you know, (laughs) you know, I mean, as somebody who studies evidence, I know there are things you can ask questions about, but when it comes to the bureaucracy of hospitals, I don't ask questions. I just do it. So I can focus on what really matters, right? So that's my life philosophy, um, uh, which, is, which I believe to be, at least for my expertise, cancer drugs and the like, and, and bad clinical trials. Okay, so I'm happy to do this too, but there's a big difference between going to church and keeping your head down and becoming a missionary. <laughs> there's a big difference. And, and the people who are become missionaries on this issue, missionaries on Twitter, are people who do understand evidence. They're really smart people and they become missionaries and the evidence does not support being a missionary. And that's what I don't understand. And I just, the only conclusion I come to is, you know, it, we all have our own ways of dealing with anxiety. And one of those ways is to proselytize um, for the things we believe are virtuous. And, you know, you can believe, there's always an escalating things of virtue. I mean, you can always come up with things, uh, how you can be more and more virtuous. Um, You know, the most extreme thing that no one talks about is if every single human being would separately stay in a room for 14, 15, 20 days with, you know, food, water, uh, uh, you know, maybe an adjacent toilet, but literally never leave the room, you know, you will theoretically extinguish a virus, uh, you know, in a short period of time. Uh, But of course, that's something that we agree we can't do. And so short, short of that, I think, you know, you have to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, none of these things are panaceas. And all of these things have trade-offs. Now let's talk about the trade-offs a little bit. I think the trade-offs have been understated. I mean, you make the great point in your thread that the wrong trade-off is economy versus health. Because health and, and socioeconomics are wedded. And when you you know, when you take a bunch of kids out of school for months. It's not going to be your kids who are hurt the most. It's not going to be children of like you know doctor level educated people who are stable income kids that are hurt. It's going to be it's going to be kids who, our parents are struggling. They're the ones who are really going to be hurt. The parents are going to be hurt. Um, the parents are not going to be able to save. They might not be able to work. You know all these things. They're going to be hurt way harder, um, and that's going to lead to death. It's not just going to lead to like bad education outcomes. It's going to lead to death um, because. Socioeconomic determinants of health are hugely wedded to health, and 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 the things we've done, you know, the one two thousand dollar paycheck, uh, that's a that's a bandage on a hemorrhage, right? That's that's not even nearly sufficient, um, you know. So so I guess my question to you is, it sounds like you you want to weigh these things. It's not easy to weigh these things. So how, what kind of process should we have to weigh all these kind of disparate things?
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, God, this is, there's a ton that could be responded to with that. I mean, I think. Um I would you know, preface this one thing that I uh, kind of, uh, when I'm you know, on Twitter or thinking about these things, it's kind of a nice break from my daily job where I'm trying to decide policy and figure out what we do in the hospital, that mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what the right answer is. Um, you know, unlike a lot of people, it seems like, I think there's a lot of you know, kind of interesting facts that should drive how we respond to uh, what we're doing and that we should keep all these things in mind and, uh, you know, and come up with the right policy. Um, And I think school is really a huge one. I mean, here in Baltimore City, the kids who go to public school, because many kids don't have Internet access, they can't get school at home. And so the public school can't have assignments for those kids who are in public school because it would preferentially support those who have Internet versus those who don't. Mm. Whereas, you know, the uh, the friends school, the the private, um, you know, kind of high end 25,000 a year school, keeps going kind of as normal and they have you know everything wired um and when you talk about the kids who uh who are at home like well, where do they go if they're if they get sent home from school and their parents still have to work some kind of essential job or they're trying to figure out you know how to make ends meet they go stay with grandparents right you know and so in some ways there could be this unintended consequence that we're putting like young people who you know seem like they get sick and can probably spread the disease but you know never get ill um, you know, not enough to be in the hospital, per se, for example, you know, then you send them to be with their grandparents who actually can die from this. So, you know, a huge unintended consequence, potentially. Yeah. Um, and it, um, you know, and, you know, there's, uh, there was uh, the Portland doctor who was kind of made fun of for uh, his uh, COVID parties, which I'm not advocating COVID <laughs> parties, but idea, yeah. I mean, I've heard a uh, very reputable, somewhat conservative infectious disease doctor say, well, we should probably send all the kids to summer camp, you know, with uh, young counselors, like, just let it happen. Hmm. Um, and they don't get sick, you know, since, uh, you know, COVID for, for kids is safer than flu. Yeah. I mean, I think that's indisputable that for kids and young adults, you're more likely to be in the hospital from RSV or flu than from COVID. Although I think for nursing homes and older, sicker adults, COVID's obviously much worse. Of course,
0: yeah, and and along that last point, you know, a couple of days ago, I think in the Lancet, there's a paper about Kawasaki disease being increased in 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 Europe, and and so people say that look like kids aren't a hundred percent safe from COVID. There's an increased risk of Kawasaki. I was like, look, Kawasaki is one per 5,000, you know, at baseline. And yeah, yeah, it looks to me rather convincing that Kawasaki, a vasculidity that uh, has no really known trigger or sort of always been idiopathic trigger, but of which one postulated trigger is viral syndromes. Um, when you have a massive viral outbreak, there will be an increased uptick in this vasculidity. Okay, so I'm actually convinced that there is a link. But however... It's still, it's still the case that it is much, much safer for children to have this because it's still super, super rare to get Kawasaki than it is to have the flu. And that fact seems to be lost on people. And, you know, I guess, I mean, not to advocate for, you know, the summer camp idea, which I don't, I, I personally wouldn't favor that idea. But I guess what, <laughs> I, what I want to say is that um, there's there's, there's nothing on earth that has a zero risk. The question is whether or not the risk is commensurate with you know with what you're doing and whether or not the countervailing effects of the of the measure outweigh the the risk um and and the answer is um you know you can really agree with a lot of policy that's been done to date but but you have to keep asking the question i think we can't just stop asking the question um so i mean you would agree that even though kawasaki risk exists uh it's still safer for kids to have this than the flu
1: yeah, I mean, that that was, I mean, uh, you know, 85 cases of Kawasaki in the United States, especially with, uh, you know, in probably many of the diagnoses being uh, syndromic, you know, which is like, what, lymphadenopathy, fever, some rash, is, a, you know, would probably not be that surprising to see in a kid who has, you know, a COVID infection. Um, yeah. You know, I know it has severe consequences sometimes, but I mean, I... I imagine there's some uncertainty in those cases, but ah, there I probably that's is a good an point increase too. Yeah. rate. And if you didn't have a weird name for it, yeah. you know, if it was called lymphadenopathy or something, yeah. people would not react as much as like, wow, Kawasaki, that's something weird. I yeah. remember it from the boards, but, yeah, uh, right. you know, it's, it sounds bad. If there's um, one
0: case of Takatsubo, then it'll all hell will break loose. You can imagine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone will be happy that they can pronounce it. Or yeah, right. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, I have a two year old, he, he was uh, hospitalized for RSV twice so far in his life, mm. um, you know, he just gets bad RSV and yeah. he, you know, was almost intubated at the Hopkins oh, ICU over Christmas, Yeah, you know, it's not a minor thing, um, you know, and like a third of the ICU was had patients with RSV, like, you know, it's just a huge problem, but it's one that we largely don't pay attention to and COVID obviously is not nearly as bad as that.
0: Yeah. You know, in, in, and, in the, you
1: know, we should ignore it, but it's just, a you yeah. know, it's, a, it's to give us some sense of like the risk that we do accept in a daily basis when we have school and daycare and other things.
0: I mean, even the risk of driving your child or pushing them in a stroller to school may sometimes exceed the risk of Kawasaki were they to get COVID and then were they to get Kawasaki from the COVID, which is still, you know, orders of magnitude lower than potentially some of these other risks. I don't know. I haven't done all the math, but I guess, I mean, the take home point here is, you know, you're not... Uh, you're not saying that anything we're doing is wrong to date, but what you're saying is that, you know, it, there is an absolutism going on. One of the ways I think that absolutism is going on is this idea that, um, you know, before coming down any rungs of the ladder in terms of liberalizing society or reopening, we need a system in place um, where we can test everybody, you know, daily and trace every single contact. And I guess I think that's a well intentioned idea, and I think that there is some examples of that working well. But once you start to escape 5% of population, 7% of population having a virus documented, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, and I think that that's been understated, that that is a really, really hard thing to do. um, And you quickly cannot do it. I mean, just not even doable. You know, it's easy to understand exponential growth when you spread the virus. But tracing contacts is exponential growth uh, with with an even steeper (laughs) slope, steeper slope
1: no i mean uh, i mean this this hits close to home because uh in part of the infection control um, responsibilities that i have we oversee some nursing homes and um we have been really aggressive because nursing homes you know clearly are where a lot of the deaths occur from from this disease and uh testing we start out by testing all patients and employees because the va wanted to be proactive and test everyone which is a huge lift to do and yeah. you know hard to have the adequate supplies to do that we got it done, um, and there were started to be cases. And people, there were people who were negative two days before, who were neg- who were positive two days later. Um, so the, you know, the testing is certainly you know far from perfect. You can miss people, which you know is well known. But then the the contract tracing that you try to do, even within a smallish group of like you know which employees had it, who were they with? Try mm-hmm. to talk to them, yeah. look at shift overlap, figure out who they were, do an initial test, then follow up later maybe. Um, you know, check check patients, isolate them in the right way. It's, uh, I mean, we have, I think like five nurses and three hospital epidemiologists who are working on this and we spend many hours a day and I'm still not sure it's working very well. Right. I mean, and that's even with all the resources that the VA has to throw at it. Like we move all of our patients out who are positive, even if asymptomatic, put them in a special private room and it's still just a, a very difficult thing to get ahead of. So. I, I mean, I agree. I think that um, you know, South Korea, Germany, other places seem to be you know really taking the test and trace and uh, really monitor closely approach. And even there, it's not working perfectly. And yeah. we are so far away from being one of those countries that I think you know we're we're going to pretend like we're Germany, but just end up being Iran.
0: <laughs> right, and, and and they did that in Germany and South Korea. These examples early, they did it really, really early. They're not doing it eight. 10 weeks into a shelter in place you know they're not starting it now i mean i think it's not easy logistically it's not easy and and that might not be even f- feasible but anyway
1: go ahead and the part that drives me crazy about tests uh, just for move off it, is that there's a big focus we just need more and more and more tests yeah. which tests i think are important but it's how you use them yeah. that matters and i think most of our tests are either used on like really sick people in the hospital because yeah. we were restricted for using them yeah. or drive-throughs where they're worried well but no, there's no kind of public health approach of like, let's target the entire population and maybe oversample closed communities, like yeah. closed religious communities, prisons, shelters, yeah. et cetera, which would really give you a flavor of like, what is the problem? Where do we need to focus? Not this kind of like crappy, you know, uh, you know, uh, convenience type data that, that we have right now.
0: When, when you got somebody who's otherwise well and they present with GGOs and they're on the vent uh, and, and and they have fevers and, and leukopenia, um, uh, your test, if it comes back negative, you're gonna doubt it. And it's a, almost a waste of time. You, it's, it's COVID until presumed otherwise. And then when you do these kind of drive-through clinics, there have been so much criticism of some of these serology studies arguing that, um, well, of course, people who are fevering and feel sick are more likely to have it. I actually think it's the opposite. People who are the worried well are the more likely to drive through um, and go get this stuff. And People who are feeling sick are under the covers i think i mean i don't know and the, but at the end of the day we don't need to speculate the right studies are not even being done i mean you know i you can crap on all these studies endlessly they're they all have limitations astrology studies but my biggest problem is we don't need four professors at one university to be leading the effort this should be run at a federal are you crazy it should be a federal effort what are you we don't need these guys to be doing it. we need a federal effort to answer this question quickly
1: I mean, it's the complete neoliberal dream, right? Like each place is doing it for themselves and has to figure out the smartest way and yeah. each hospital's competing for supplies yeah. and like let's, you know, outbid someone on N95 so we can sneak them in and have more and, you know, give bunny suits to this, you know, group of anesthesiologists wanted or, yeah. you know, I mean, it's a, it's it's such a mess and it could be so much easier with just a little bit of federal guidance. Yeah,
0: well, just like uh, just like tracing all context is easier easier thought about than done. Well Dan Morgan, I'll give you the last word um, and then and then I'm gonna I'm gonna duck um, uh, but you know I thought your tweets were provocative and it Jeff it definitely generated a you know a, a super large response suggesting that I think a lot of people are on your wavelength um, you know so what are your final thoughts on this topic what do you what do you want people not to uh, of course the beauty of a podcast is people who don't listen this long. Are in the business of misconstruing you on Twitter. That's the number one game, but not on a podcast. But you know, what would you want people to know about your position and thinking here?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I think that um, that uh, just that I would advocate that we do need to be cautious, but we need to be cautious of both what we do and what we don't do. Yeah. And it seems like you know, similar to uh, you know us treating patients, where there's this bias towards uh, action and always doing something. You know, I think that's gone even further with, uh, you know, we need to have some kind of response to a pandemic and maybe doing that blindly. So I just would advocate that uh, we are careful and thoughtful about the the impacts of both what we do and we don't do, and that we probably, um, you know, revise our policy frequently based upon, you know, the actual facts on the ground.
0: That's well said. And so that's Dr. Dan Morgan, Trump supporter since 2015. no. <laughs> uh infection control expert professor of medicine and in fact left-leaning progressive thinker um who 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 strikes this message so dan thanks so much for coming on the podcast it's great to have you
1: yeah great chatting with you and
0: you've been listening to season two of plenary session i've been your host dr vanai prasad plenary session was produced by kiana klossner music by ian straley and audrey tran Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session, or email us at plenary session at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.